October 2018 marks the 10th anniversary of navigating the Frontier Market Universe. And joining me today to talk about the past decade of Frontier Market Investing and how we go about finding great investment opportunities in many of these remote countries across the globe is Head of Global Frontiers, uh, Peter Leger. Welcome back, Pete. Thanks, Krishni. It's great to be here again. Maybe if I had to ask you, if you just pause and look back over the last 10 years, what it was like starting a Frontier Markets Fund a month after the financial crisis, and then the number of different times in which we saw different countries emerge with quite volatile happenings, you know, Egypt's revolution, and all the time being material parts of the portfolio. What did it feel like? What have you learned a decade later? So at the time, the feeling was more of stunned disbelief. Um, you know, we launched our All Africa Fund the 1st of August in 2008, and we had our first roadshow in Europe in September. And I distinctly remember being in front of a, a crowd in a room, and as I was speaking, people were checking their phones, standing up, leaving the room. And, you know, for a younger fund manager at the time, it was quite a hit on the ego that you couldn't hold people's attention. I didn't realize that the message coming through was Lehman's had just rolled over. The next day it was AIG having lost $100 billion. And the week just got progressively worse. And so, you know, Africa fell off the radar to a large extent. Subsequent to that, and I remember well with you when we were traveling in the US, you know, literally in the pre-meeting room area with CNN on the screen, we saw Tahir Square in Egypt going up in flames. Mubarak was overthrown. And so it's always been a very tough backdrop in terms of convincing investors and explaining the opportunity set because the noise from the macro is overwhelming. And when it wasn't political change, you had macroeconomic pressures come through. So in Nigeria, the currency market froze up for an extended period of time. And it's a very difficult chat to explain to a client why you are battling to get liquidity. Uh, you know, it's always been a challenge. Having said that, um, the fund has never had to go into any kind of extraordinary redemption conditions or, or notices. Um, so we've managed to always meet flows as and when required. And I think that talks a lot to the clients and the investors who've chosen the as asset class, understanding what those challenges are, and even more importantly, appreciating that with those challenges come great opportunities. And Without fail, we've almost always made good returns from periods where there's been extreme volatility because you'll have a degree of investor capitulation and, and with that comes asset prices that, that are often very attractive. How do you go about thinking about uh, currencies before investing in a particular company and country? And secondly, how do you go about managing the portfolio when you do actually have a currency that is not um, at its optimal liquidity levels? By far and away, this is the, the biggest challenge that the overall portfolio has had to deal with. I think, lest we forget, these are countries that teeter, in some cases, on the edge of being called failed states. And you know, we put that on, on the box as a health warning early on, so investors need to be mindful of that. But we also say that with that comes opportunities, and that has definitely been the case. You know, currently, we have a, an issue in Zimbabwe, and this has been over a year now that we face this challenge, where you cannot transact dollars out of Zimbabwe. There are mechanisms, but you end up taking a massive discount against that. And for investors and, and for investors in the fund, you know, all we can apply there is a best effort in terms of trying to make sure we treat everyone as fairly as possible, and we provide a mechanism that allows for liquidity and allows for investors to redeem or invest on a fair and very transparent 
basis. Having said all of that, what does happen when currency challenges present themselves is that you'll have a number of investors who leave the neighborhood. And so whenever somebody decides to sell, not because of valuation, but because they're battling in terms of capital flows, you know, that's when you get huge sales shelves to, to pick from. And so the pricing on, on assets have been phenomenal in many cases. And so if we look at Zim, you know, a year ago, where that market was trading versus where it is today, even if you account for the currency challenges, you know, the actual asset levels are just so much better and returns have been great. So th those opportunities are interesting. Don't try and make this too big a part of your overall portfolio or strategy. But because of those dynamics, and if you understand them and you can navigate them, we'll keep saying that you know, those opportunities are there and should be taken. If we go into some of the investment ideas that you know, we've quite liked, I remember the electronic payment space in Africa, the mobile money, M-Pesa, the first time that you guys uncovered that M-Pesa investment case. That was quite an exciting period. It was very, very new. But I know that that's also given you insight in terms of what the space can do in other frontier markets. And so it's actually provided a great experience ground for what, you know, when we then looked at global frontier markets, we were able to identify as um, good companies, good industries. I mean, the perennial question for us in frontiers is, what are you really excited about? What is the industry? And, and people expect you to talk about commodities often or, you know, very old economy type opportunities. And by far and away, the most dynamic and high growth opportunity is mobile money. And in Africa and in global frontiers, there's still a bunch of opportunities where you have that holy grail of reasonable multiples, reasonable valuations, and very high growth. You know, we looked extensively at Impesa over the years. Now, this is a business which is pretty mature in many ways, yet still growing strongly and still finding many, many new avenues of growth. We value the business today at around $4 billion, so it's a pretty reasonable asset. We have great debate with our emerging markets team where they look at Ant Financial, the, the Alibaba financial business. That's valued at $150 billion, just to give you a sense of where the spectrum lies. But most of the global frontier mobile money businesses earn far greater revenue per user numbers than what we see in China. So they're monetizing these businesses much more successfully, and there's very little competition because your winner takes all is very much the case, and, and they do extremely well. Having said all of that, it's one of those industries where we're still trying to get our head around it. I mean, there's a very obvious monetization process, and that we see that now in the money that's being made. I mean, Zimbabwe is a case in point where 96% of all retail transactions are now done by EcoCash on mobile money. I mean, that's unheard of. Now, imagine the information that you have when you have full sight of your economy. You know exactly what's happening, who's buying what, where, and how, and what can then be done with that. I mean, there are all sorts of secondary opportunities that now get driven off this, and they're only beginning to apply their minds and to think about putting in processes and business models to monetize that. So I think we've got a, you know, another decade plus of a very exciting investment opportunity in that space. And while we've done a deep dive of mobile money in Africa, having looked at you know, MTN Ghana, Vodacom Tanzania, the very interesting insights have actually also started coming out of global frontier markets such as Bangladesh and Pakistan. In, in Bangladesh, there's a bank called Brack Bank, which has Bcash, and there are a number of very interesting partners in that. And, and Financial have bought a 20% stake of that business. 
And the business model there is nuanced and incredibly profitable. And so we see that business just going from strength to strength. In Pakistan, there was Telenor, and they've got a business again, and Financial have bought into that. So you can see that the early adopters or the early starters, such as Alibaba, are committing significant resources to developing and growing that market. And I think we're trying to just follow in their footsteps in terms of understanding that better. Can you unpack some of the other very exciting opportunities, both at an industry and company level, that we've looked at to deploy within the portfolios? So, I mean, I'll touch on a, a more controversial one, and, and we're doing more work on that, um, and that is tobacco. And tobacco has received a lot of attention again. I mean, it's gone through periods of being a terrible investment and then resurgence, and again, today, you know, it's rolled over. In Global Frontiers, we're in a, an interesting situation where you've effectively got a, an informal market in a lot of these economies, which it's massive. And so there's a very low quality, very unhealthy tobacco product where it's not well controlled, excise is very poor, and it funds a whole bunch of other secondary, not great industry activities. Your tobacco businesses sit at number one or number two in terms of tax collection. They're the cornerstone of a lot of these governments in terms of revenue. And they model corporate citizens. They're very aware of the reputation that tobacco has. They're very mindful of being on the right side of it. And they're the drivers of WHO regulations and the application thereof. So, so they behave very well within the laws that are set for them. So the question for investors is, how do you then treat those? And we have that debate ourselves as to whether are they partly a force for good as well as a force for bad? And to recognize that and to have a, a healthy adult debate around that. And we still think because of that, there are significant returns to be had for investors who go about it in a responsible way. And how do you go about actually thinking about governance concerns in general in frontier markets? On ESG and on governance, you know, I think nowhere more than in frontiers is this a relevant issue. And it, it's multifaceted and it comes with many, many different dimensions. You know, there's different schools of thought. I mean, one is that you only invest in ESG businesses and you screen out for all those that are not or don't comply to, to the degree that you need them to. And there's a growing school of thought where because these are such nascent businesses and they're so early in their own life cycle that our responsibility is one where we can still invest, but then we work closely with those businesses. Because in many cases, it's not an active ESG oversight. It's just they don't know better. And there's an education process. And where is that going to come from other than from responsible investors who partner with these businesses and, and, and try and journey with them? And there's a real benefit to clients for that because if a company has got a massive ESG discount and addresses it over a three, four-year period, you benefit tremendously from that normalization. Thanks very much, Pete. I certainly look forward to chatting again in the future on some of the new ideas that are coming through. And as always, you can read all of the articles generated by our Global Frontiers team on our website and stay tuned for more discussions like these in our series of podcasts, which are also available on our website, or you can subscribe to them on iTunes.